Amen. Today's scripture reading is in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. pray with me? Father, we have confessed this morning before you our sin, the ways in which we have gone astray from your design, from your character, from your goodness, the ways in which we have rebelled against you, and we confess that. But we have also confessed this morning the hope that we have in Christ, the hope in life and the hope in death that we will be with you. So, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, that even in our sin, even in our brokenness, even in our rebellion, you don't leave us there, but you give us hope, you give us life, and we thank you for your goodness toward us, your mercy toward us, your grace toward us, totally undeserved, but we praise you for it. And, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, your word is a timeless truth that confronts so much of the confusion of our day. The confusion that surrounds us on all these matters, Lord, you give us your word to sift through, to cut to the, the, the depths of our heart, to show us our sin, to, to cut into the world in which we live, to show us our rebellion against you, but all the more to show us the hope of Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would do your work through it. I pray that your spirit would preach a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. I pray that your, your spirit would, would, would take the truth of your word from the pages into the hearts of everyone in this room. That we would see your good design for us, the way you made things to be, the way you uh, call us to live that all the more we would see your beautiful son, Jesus, the savior of our souls. I pray your word would not return to you void, but it would do everything you intend to accomplish through it this morning in your people gathered together here at Grace. Show us Jesus. May we see him, love him, and grow to understand our relationship with him and the joy that comes from him in deeper ways this morning. And so we ask all of this in his name, Amen. If your son were to come to you and ask you the question, hey dad, what does it mean to be a man? What would you tell him? If your daughter were to come to you and say, hey mom, what does it mean to be a woman? What would you tell her? 
It's always been an important question to answer when it comes to the next generation. It's always been an important one for us to, to wrestle with and grasp, but it's an especially pertinent question for our day. It's one that seems to have particular relevance because there no longer seems to be any common set of assumptions. No longer does there seem to be a common understanding of what it means to be male and female, such that even the mere concept of maleness and femaleness is something that seems today to be located in the inner subjective self and the feelings and in nothing more, certainly not in biological reality. And yet the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. If you're not there, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's on page 1 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll look at Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. But right from that verse, we see three, at least three, important truths about man. First of all, we are made by God. He's our maker. Second of all, we are made in God's image. And third, we are made male and female. And so what we've done is we've taken a week on each one of those three truths. Two weeks ago, Dan preached on how God created all that we see around us, the entire world, including you and I. He is the maker, the creator of all things. Last week, we looked at what it means to be made in God's image. What implications does that have for our lives? Let's unpack that reality. And then this morning, what does it mean to be made male and female? This is really part two of the message that began last week. So if you missed that one, I encourage you to go check it out because that's the foundation, that's the groundwork, that's the, that's the solid footing on which we're building this morning, meaning that we are made in the image of God. We've got to start there. We've got to understand that because the first thing where we'll begin this morning, the first thing we want to see is that men and women are in God's image. God created both man and woman in his image, both of them. We've got to start by understanding the similarities. We've got to start by understanding the, the, the things that we have in common because actually I think Genesis 1 and 2 is just as much, if not more so, intending to show us the similarities and what we have in common than it is the differences. Both men and women made in the image of God. Look at verse 27 again. When God makes man meaning mankind or humanity, he makes them male and female. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So men and women both in the image of God. When God designed us as human beings, he designed every one of us, men and women, to share, to, to bear the image of God. The imago Dei, as it is often called, is not something just given to men, and it's not something just given to women. It is something that men and women share in common. And it's not something that's like, well, well, men have half of it, and women have half of it. No, no, no. Men in fullness bear the image of God. Women in fullness bear the image of God. We are made like God. So we have the same identity as God's creation, as God's handiwork, as God's masterpiece, that we are made in his image, both men and women. We see the similarities right there from the start. Similarly, you jump to verse 28, the next verse. And we see that God's blessing is directed to both men and women, and God blessed them, both man and woman, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, so he gives not only the blessing to them, but he also gives the creation mandate to both of them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on 
the earth. So this blessing is given to both man and woman, and this commission, this commandment, is given to both men and women. And just biologically speaking, the command to be fruitful and multiply cannot happen without both man and woman coming together. Now we jump to chapter 2. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Whereas chapter 1 gives us the big picture overview of God's creation work, chapter 2 zeroes in on what is it, what was the creation of man? Zeroes in on the work in the garden. We'll come back there next week, but I want you to see a few key aspects this morning. Start in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God takes the dust and forms it into a body, and then God breathes life into it. And so all of a sudden, he is alive. Adam was made first. Jump to verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God sees something's not good here. Adam needs a helper. So what does God do? He begins by bringing all the creatures that he has made to Adam. Adam was the one who rightly had dominion over all of them. He was the one who was the vice regent set up by God to rule the earth. And part of that authority, part of that dominion is demonstrated by the fact that Adam is the one who gives them names. And so God brings all the creatures before Adam and Adam starts naming them. Hey, that's a lion and that's a kangaroo and that's a whatever. But so he, so he starts naming them. And, and all of a sudden, what God is doing is he's showing Adam there's no helper suitable for you. And that's where we come to in verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's so the first time, all of a sudden, throughout all of chapter one, and it was good and it was good and it was good. And here God says, it's not good. So he says, it's not good that Adam's alone. None of the animals can fill that role. And so in verse 21, it says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And you know what Adam's response is? To that? Verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, look at what that story is emphasizing. See what it's screaming at you is that God brings all the animals before Adam and none of them are found to be like him. None of them are found to be the helper suitable for him. And then God creates Eve. And what is Adam's response when he sees Eve? It's not, wow, she's really different than me. She must be a woman. It is finally there's someone like me. Genesis 1 and 2 is focusing on the similarities, on what we share in common with one another. And we've got to understand this lest we risk overemphasizing the differences that come between men and women. There are differences, and we'll get there in a moment. But you know, the old book humorously posited that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but that's not true. We're both human beings from earth, made in God's image as male and female. What we have in common as image bearers of God is significant. We are equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in worth, equal in standing before God. Man and woman are more alike to each other than they are to any other creature the Lord God has made. You know, in recent decades, there has been a seeming erosion of the differences between men and women. And yet in response to that, sometimes what has happened is people have overemphasized the differences between them, making them basically the only thing about us. 
There are differences, inherent biological differences between men and women. There are differences in function and role between men and women. But before we get to any of that, we must be clear on what men and women have in common. We are image bearers of God. Men and women are equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in image bearing, and should be treated as such by us. It might sound like nothing to the modern ear. You say, wait a second, that's, that's common sense 101. But in past centuries, that would have caused people's jaws to drop while they scoffed at you and went away laughing. What do you mean women are equal with men? The ancient world uh, said, sure, uh, men can do whatever they want. It said, uh, you know, men and women certainly aren't equal. Christianity actually brought about the greatest sexual revolution the world has ever seen. The ancient world into which the Bible was given said that uh, men can do whatever they want. They can sleep with whomever they want. They can mistreat women however they want. And Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 no. Women are created in the image of God. They are worthy of honor and respect just as much as men are. And the Christian sexual revolution came along and said to men, you can't just go around sleeping whoever you want. You marry one woman, she's your wife. And within that union is where sexual intimacy occurs. So Christianity reigned in men's sexual uh, promiscuity alongside the clear maintaining of the image of God in both men and women. In fact, one of the earliest criticisms levied against the early church was that women and the oppressed peoples flocked to it. In our day, we see Christianity as a barrier to women's rights, but there has been no stronger or more powerful pro-women movement impacting cultures that it has been in part of like Christianity has. One second century Greek philosopher mocked Christians by saying that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, only the dishonorable and the stupid, only the slaves, women, and little children. Christians believe in women's rights. We believe women are created equal with men as image bearers before God, worthy of value and honor and love. But we also believe that men and women have different roles and that is by design. That men and women are not identical and that's part of God's good design for how he made things to be. See, there's a difference between that sexual revolution brought about by Christianity in ancient cultures and the sexual revolution that we have seen in our day in recent decades. The sexual revolution that that Christianity brought in the early church was going to men and saying, hey, you just can't go around and sleep with whomever you want. The sexual revolution of recent decades has been going to women and saying, you can do whatever men can do. Because somehow we've gotten into our minds that the only way for a woman to be truly, fully human is to do exactly what a man does. But all this really touches on our understanding of what it really means to be human in the first place. What is the human self? What is the human identity? And that's why we've got to start, why we've got to ground this whole discussion in a clear understanding of maleness and femaleness, of sex and gender within the context of being made in the image of God as men and women. It's the the question of identity that comes to the surface. Over the last several hundred years, the common Western culture that you and I swim in, and we don't even realize it, has become one of what people have called expressive individualism. By that, we mean that we define a person's true self and who we really are 
by the inner subjective feelings within. That is the core of who we are. It's the core of my being. And because of that, then those feelings, that true self must be expressed outwardly. It must be demonstrated, it must be lived out in order for me to really be who I actually am inside. And because of that, then the, since, since I know best who that true self is, and since I need to have a chance to express it outwardly, then the, the, the worst evil you can do to me is to keep me from doing that. The greatest form of oppression is to keep me from actually living that out. And that's what's behind so much of what we see today. So what's behind what we see driving things. And let me say, every single person in this room, every one of you, myself included, views the human self and our identity like that. It's, it's built into us. We swim in these waters. We think of humanity as individualized, that it's about me, I know best, I know best what to do, I know best about myself, I see myself best. We place a very high priority on our feelings and our experiences as the judge of things, and we don't like authority because it might, it might tell us differently in what to do. We all think like that. And so we say things like, well, personal happiness is my highest aim. And I know best what's right for me, so I just want to let the true me shine forth. Those kind of statements make sense within the context of expressive individualism. It's, the, it's, it's how we all make decisions. It's the air that we breathe. It informs everything about our lives, from marriage to children to work to church to entertainment and everything in between. And out of this soil of expressive individualism has arisen a great confusion over what it means to be made male and female, making it difficult to understand what it really is and if there's really even a difference. And that's where the book of Genesis comes to us like a cool drink on a hot summer day to a confused world and says, let me show you what reality is and let me tell you what is really true. Let me tell you how God set things up to work. We've got to have some solid foundation, something firm to stand on, not some subjective feeling that could change on a whim, but something solid and firm. And that's what Genesis gives to us. Is it really true that my actual self is what I feel inside, even if my body doesn't match up to it? No, your actual self is that you were made in God's image. That's why you have value and dignity and worth beyond what you could ever imagine or dream both male and female, equally made in his image. But that's not to say there's no difference between men and women, or that those differences don't matter, because while Genesis 1 and 2 does show us the similarities, it also points out the differences. It also shows us what is different between us. Men and women are different and not interchangeable. As Rebecca McLaughlin writes, men and women are equally important, but they are also importantly different. So we see in chapter 1, Male and female, he created them. But that actually shouldn't be a surprise for those of us who have been reading along with chapter one, because the entirety of creation in chapter one is featuring different yet complementary pairs. Look at it. There was nothing, and then there was something. There is heaven, and there is earth. There is light, and there is darkness. There is day, and there is night. There is evening, and there is morning. There is land, and there is water. There is sun, and there is moon. There is man, and there is woman. Complementary pairs, not interchangeable, not different. We wouldn't come and say land and water are the same thing and can fill the same purposes, yet we need both of them. Men and women, different yet complementary. Designed by God as equals yet to fill different roles and functions. But what this all tells us is that gender was God's idea. It was his design. He set it up to be this way. 
Now, gender confusion, as so many experience these days, in heartbreaking ways, came from the fall and from sin, as we'll get to in chapter 3. But gender itself is a God-designed and God-given element of God's creation. It's the way he made them to be. So when God created things, he declared them good. You see the pattern, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Then we come to chapter 2, and we see when God says it was not good. We saw that earlier. We read that in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Do you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that God went to Adam and said, hey, what do you need? Tell me what you need, and I'll give it to you. It doesn't say that God went to Adam and said, hey, you know yourself best, so... Tell me what to do and I'll do it. There's actually nothing in the text to even suggest that Adam knew he was lacking something. And it's not like Adam's sitting there and saying, I wish I had a woman. You would have said, what's a woman? He didn't know that he was lacking, but God saw and God knew. He said, it's not good Adam's alone. I know what to do. I'm going to make a woman for him. God knew best what Adam needed. And God knows best what you and I need. See, we think that we are the true experts about ourselves so that no one else is able to tell me how I should think or how I should live because no one else knows the true me like I do. But we see here that God knows best. God's the one who made you. God knows exactly what you need. Adam doesn't go to God and say, hey, I thought of something you missed. God comes to Adam and says, here's what you need. Jesus in Matthew chapter six says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And in that same chapter, Jesus refers, says, look at the birds of the, the heavens and the, and the grass and flowers on the field. And then he says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And that's why we can trust what Philippians 4 says when it says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian here today, there is nothing right now that you lack that would make you closer to Jesus if you had it than you could be right now. God knows exactly what you need. He is a good father who gives good gifts. He knows you better than you even know yourself. And when he doesn't give something to you that you think you so desperately need and so deeply want, it's because this God in his infinite wisdom knows better what you need than we can see. It's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to make sense of. And it's hard for us to actually embrace and like but I think it's important for us to understand, particularly in this conversation and in the context of this discussion, because maybe you're here right now and you're single and wishing you were married and you think, God hasn't really given me what I need. It's not good that man should be alone. God hasn't given me what I need and therefore I'm not sure he really knows me best. 
And that's because both inside and outside the church, we have come to define who you are as a human being by your relational, stat, relational status or by your sexual activity. So therefore, to not be in a relationship or to not have sexual fulfillment means that you are lacking some of the basic necessities of what you need to even be a, a human being. And so because of that then, when God doesn't give those things, we think, well, then he doesn't really know me and he doesn't know best. But we see here that he knew Adam and knew exactly what Adam needed and he acted upon it. You say, well, God says it's not good that man should be alone. So you say, does God just want me to be lonely then? And I think we need to pause and say that while we typically understand this passage primarily and solely through the lens of marriage, I think we need to see that God's design for men and women extends beyond just that and how we need other men and women. We need to be in relationship with one another in the church in a healthy way as brothers and sisters. It's not good that man should be alone, but God gives men and women together in a church to address that. God knew exactly what Adam needed, but he wanted Adam to see it first. So what God does is God knows what he needs, but instead of just creating a woman, he starts bringing the animals one by one past Adam. And Adam starts saying, wait a second, you know what I'm noticing? There's no animal like me. There's no one here that's made like me. And then Adam all of a sudden realizes, oh, wait a second. I know what I need. And God says, yeah, here, here you go. That's what's happening here. So Adam realizes there was not found a helper fit for him. What he needs is a helper fit for him. You say, wait a second, that word helper, I, wait, wait, time out. What does that mean? Well, it's used elsewhere in the Bible. For example, that same word shows up in Exodus chapter 18. The God of my father was my help. Same word. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. Same word and our shield. Psalm 146, blessed is he whose help, same word, is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord his God. See, scripture uses this same word to refer to God as our helper, as the helper of his people. So we cannot read this as denoting any sort of inferiority from women and men, because then we would say, well, God then is inferior to his people. No, no, no. But God comes along and says, you know what role I'm going to fill with my people? I'm going to help them. And God creates Eve, woman, to help man. It doesn't speak to any sort of status or significance or worth or value, but simply to function and role. One commentator says, woman being made out of man's side, as she is, is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. We see the wonder of woman is not simply that she is like man, but that she is different, complementary yet different. God created men and women for each other. Now, these differences are most clearly seen in marriage, but we must not say they are exclusively seen there, lest to uh, render gender differences non-existent outside of marital relationships. But they are most clearly seen in marriage as uh, roles and, and functions there. For example, women give birth, men do not. Yet there are other things that are a bit more culturally conditioned in our minds. For example, are men the ones who go around the house fixing things and women the ones who do the cooking? There's nothing in the Bible that says that. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's the way it needs to be. 
And so we must clearly hold to what the Bible says are the distinctions of role between men and women without confusing what the culture says are the distinctions and muddying the two. This is important because of the mass confusion of gender in our day. You think about what happens if a young boy grows up in the church and doesn't like hunting and doesn't like being outdoors. He'd rather stay inside, paint, and cook. Typically what happens is he comes to church and he looks at all the, uh, all the things offered for men's ministry and it's all outdoorsy stuff. And he says, well, I don't want to do any of that. And people in the church say, well, you just got to uh, be more manly. And what happens is he starts to think, well, then I must not really be a man. And he becomes confused. In our day, we must hold clearly to the distinction between men and women and the God-given roles and functions for each without confusing the cultural associations that lead to greater gender confusion. Rebecca McLaughlin elaborates on this. She says, in a world where transitioning to the opposite sex or rejecting the gender binary has come to seem for some like salvation, we must affirm the goodness of male and female bodies without clinging to unbiblical gender stereotypes. If Jesus cooked for his disciples, wept with his friends, and took babies into his arms, we don't need to pretend that manhood is just about loving cars, watching sports, and lifting weights. And if Jesus had some of his most important theological conversations with women, we must not act as if women only care about cooking and clothes. Christians must repent of the ways in which our embrace of cultural stereotypes has made some people feel as if they don't belong in their own skin. So there's a danger we must be aware of, church, of overly defining the differences between men and women as cultural associations and not God-given roles. But the greater danger in our day seems to be a, uh, the, to downplay the differences between men and women whatsoever, to render them insignificant or invisible. But the, these truths in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 should tell us that, that they are not everything, but they are also not nothing. Sex is not everything. We tend to think of our identity as human beings, as tied up with our sexuality. But God says it's as an image bearer. We tend to think that you're not really a human being unless you live in accordance with your sexuality, unless you are expressing yourself that way. But the Bible tells you your identity is wrapped up in who God made you to be. And you have value and dignity and worth there. Sex is not everything. It's not the basis of your worth or your identity before God or before others. But there is also the equally dangerous push to say sex is nothing. It's insignificant. Gender is totally fluid. It can be changed. And what this argument sees, it's interesting, is a sharp divide between body and soul. So that uh, the, the, the inner self feels this way and I'm trapped in a body that doesn't match. You know, the early church dealt with that a long time ago, actually. One of the heresies the early church dealt with was called Gnosticism. What that taught was there was a sharp distinction, a sharp divide between body and soul. It said, soul is good, body is bad. And the early church said, wait a second. God took on a human body, lived as a human being, was resurrected as a human being, and right now, today, sits enthroned, embodied as a human being at the right hand of God the Father. The body is not bad. But what we see arising today is because there's, there's no new heresy under the sun. It's just old stuff repackaged in modern ways. And what we see now is the same thing arising again of a sharp distinction between body and soul. Soul, what's inside me is good, and the body is the barrier to that being realized. 
Everything about our day screams that, the, that our bodies are the mere vessels for the true selves within to be expressed. And you know, one of the strongest ways this has actually played out today is not in the area of sexuality, but in the area of the internet and Zoom and digital social media, all these things. Because what happens is you can hop on a Zoom call and you can be there with somebody even though you're not embodied with them. And you can think my true self is what matches my online persona even though you're not embodied physically there with them. And we come to think of our body and soul as sort of distinct and different. And so it's no surprise then that out of that kind of context and that kind of thinking then arises some, some distinctions about, well, this is what I feel inside and the body doesn't match that and so the body must be bad. not so much about physical presence, not so much about embodiment, as much as it is about my soul being engaged and being right. That's why, for example, so many people have bought the lie, church can be done virtually. I think it doesn't really matter that we're actually physically there, we're not actually embodied there, because my physical embodied presence isn't all that significant in the first place. So we tend to think in modern ways, but God created us both body and soul. We are embodied human beings. You don't just uh, inhabit a body, you are a body. There's something deeply intrinsic about our nature as demonstrated biologically about being made male and female. You know, God didn't have to, to, to do it this way. God could have chosen whatever way. He could have said, Adam, you're enough by yourself. But God said, no, I'm going to choose to create man and woman. And, you know, he could have just given another man to work the garden with Adam, but he couldn't have given another man to do the fruitful and multiply. So God knew exactly what he was doing, said, this is the design I want to accomplish with that. It was purposeful and not random. And that means that the that the gender God has given to you is purposeful and not random. God knew what he was doing. God had a design and a plan. Psalm 139 speaks of God crafting our very being, body and soul, designing us intimately and intricately according to his design and his purpose. He did not make a mistake in how he made you. Sam Oliberry says, our gender identity is not something that we search for in our feelings. It is something that we find in our bodies. You say, well, if that's the way God designed it, why did he do it that way? Is he even good in doing it? And that leads us to our third observation. Men and women both create in the image of God. Men and women are different by God's design. And God's design for men and women as different yet complementary image bearers is good. His design is good. We see again at the end of chapter one, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God's design for how he had made the world, God's design for how he had made human beings, including sex, including gender, was very good. And what happens when we reject God's design of sex and take it into our own hands is that we declare God is not really good and God does not really know what he's doing. This happens when we reject his design for sexuality by pursuing homosexual relationships. This happens when we reject God's design for sexuality by embracing transgenderism. This happens when we reject God's design for sexuality by downplaying men and women and the differences that come with them. This happens when we reject God's design for sexuality when we go and sleep with whomever we want thinking there's no big deal. When we go against God's design in these areas, we're rebelling against him. You say, we're saying to God, well, I, know you, well, I don't even know if you made me, but if you made me, you made a mistake in doing it. 
and you're not really good. We say, I know you made me with male parts, Lord, but you made a mistake there. I know you created man and woman to complement each other, but I think I'll find more happiness with another man. Thank you very much. We shake our fists at God and think, I know better than you do. I know myself better than you do. I know how I'm going to find more joy and more happiness and more fulfillment and more satisfaction than you do. You say, doesn't God want me to just be happy? That's why our understanding must come in the context of the entirety of chapter one. That the God who made all things, the sovereign Lord of the universe who created everything, did so for his glory. His highest aim was to get glory. And the maker gets a say in how he is glorified. He gets a say in what brings him glory and what does not. He gets a say in how you live your life to his glory and how you don't. He's the one who gets to define those terms. He's the one who gets to set the agenda. He's the one who gets to declare good and evil. God made you for his glory. But here's the amazing thing. That God also made you with this innate longing inside, this desire for joy and companionship and satisfaction and fulfillment. God made you with that. But he also knows you best. And he knows that the only place you will really find that joy, the only place you will really find someone who will stick by you and never leave you, the only place you will really find someone who so loves you and cares for you and accepts you and, 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 and fulfills those longings in your heart is with him. God didn't create us to be led by our desires into whatever we want sexually. He created us with those desires to lead us to him to find the deepest joy and delight in him. Because you think about it, if the God who created human beings, if the God who created the human body, if the God in whose image we are made, if the God who made us male and female, if the God who created sex, if, that is, if he is really God, then it means God must be greater than all of it. God must be better than all of that. God is greater than the best, most fitting human body you could ever dream of. God is greater than the joy that you imagine would come from embracing a different gender. God is greater than all the joys of sex could offer you. God is better than all of it, and he wants you to find your deepest joy and satisfaction in himself. And the more that we come to know this God who is good, the more we will come to see that his design for us is good too. You know, if you think about it, if you can trust God with the eternal salvation of your soul, and you can trust to God that one day he will raise your body from the dead, then can you not also trust him right now with your sexuality, with the gender that he has given to you? Kathy Keller says this, justice in the end is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you are able to see justice in, in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much trust you have in God's character. See, when the serpent comes along in chapter three, we'll get there in a few weeks, and when the serpent comes along, he starts sowing doubt into God's character. He says the, the real pathway to joy and fulfillment is in going against God's design, and in that we see the same root of so much temptation today, don't we? That the way you're really going to, to flourish as a human being, the way you're really going to find happiness, the way you're really going to find joy, the way you're really going to find significance and satisfaction is in going against what God has said, going against his design and contrary to it, where really it is to live in light of it. 
Now I know some of you today are sitting here and you are dealing with thoughts and feelings that are contrary to the design we've been looking at. And you know it. And the feelings of helplessness and hopelessness are washing over you. Some of you today hate your own body. You feel so insecure in it and you just wish that it could change. Some of you today are struggling with homosexual attractions and they seem so strong, it's hard to see how God could possibly say it's wrong. Maybe you're living right now in a relationship that you know you shouldn't be, that's contrary to God's design for husband and wife. And maybe you're here, and this I think pertains to everyone, and you believe that the real path to human flourishing is to follow your desires, follow the true inner self, because you are what you feel. But that's not what defines you. You are not defined by your feelings. You're not defined by your sexuality or by your sexual activity. You are not defined by your relationship or your lack thereof. You are defined by being made by God in his image as a man or a woman. There is nothing that is more countercultural in our days than to reject the lie of expressive individualism that tells you, well, you must define yourself and you must find fulfillment for yourself and, and pursue yourself. And this extends to every area of our lives, not just sexuality. If you want to counter this, that we see some of the fruit stemming up from sexuality, if you want to counter that, counter the lie of expressive individual that has taken root in every one of our hearts. And it means the way that you approach relationships. Are you looking for it and just saying, well, what can you give me because I'm just pursuing my own happiness? It means the way you approach church. Are you just looking at it and saying, well, what can it give to me? Because that's the, you know, I'm, I'm just led by whatever feels best for me, whatever my feelings and emotions connect with. That's how you approach work and saying, is it just what you can, the feeling you can give me if I'm making a difference? Or is it, what, what, what's going on? It's how you approach entertainment and everything else in your life. Are you approaching it from a standpoint of saying, I know myself best, and this true self, this, this self that is, that is based on how I feel and the experience I want to have, is that what I'm being led by? Is that what I'm being governed by? Or is there something more solid, something more firm of a foundation to rest upon than the whims of feelings and culture can give us? Your identity, friends, is grounded in God's design for you as an image bearer bearing his likeness to the world. And the way you think about your sexuality and your gender is defined by that. See, I, I'm sure some of you right now are kind of thinking, hey, you know what? I'm not totally convinced on this whole Christian thing about sex. It seems pretty weird to me. But let me tell you, what Christians believe about sex is far weirder than you think. Yes, it's true that uh, we believe God created two complementary and yet different sexes, men and women. That's true. It's not just that we believe that the only sexual intimacy between human beings is to be in a marital relationship between a husband and a wife. That's true. But we also believe that all of this actually pictures the love of Christ for his church. All of this is actually given to us as a picture of the way Jesus loves his church. So there is a real sense then in which to dilute God's design for gender is to in some way dilute the message of the gospel. Because God said that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, it is a picture of the gospel, a picture of the way Jesus loves his church. 
That the husband's love for his wife as the head of the household is a picture of the way Christ loves his church as its head. And the way that the wife submits to her husband is, the way, is a picture of the way the church submits to Christ. It is a picture of the gospel. That when God created this, he had that in mind. He said, I'm going to paint on the canvas of the blank universe a picture of my love for my people that has stretched onto eternity past. And I'm going to show and demonstrate in the way I've set the world to be. So in that regard, maleness and femaleness are not random. Because what happens is then uh, when, you, when, when a man and a man come together, they are turning inward. Whereas in reality, it's supposed to reflect the love of Christ. It's more about self-love. And we're sending a confused message to a world that's already confused about the gospel. We are tearing down some of the building blocks God has given to say, Here, here's a picture of my love for you, and we're tearing it down and turning it around and confusing people about Christ. See, all of us really want our hearts to be good. We want, we want to be good inside. So the answer to the modern self is that my heart is good, but the body is bad, and the oppression that I get around me is trying to keep that within, but I just need to let the true self, the good inner self, shine, and then I'll really be realized. Then I'll really be human. But Christians come along and say, there's a better way of going about making your heart good. Because the Bible says your heart is wicked and evil. It is bent on sin and rebellion against him. And that includes all of us who are sexually broken and rebellious against God and all of us who have rebelled against God in every other area of our lives. We are broken and wicked and deserving of condemnation and wrath. But God says, I'm going to give you my son. And in him can your heart be cleansed of sin and made pure. We're all looking for that. But there's actually a way for it to come about. This hope rests in the God who became man. The one who, in the very beginning, made the human body, made one for himself. He took on human flesh and lived among us as, he, as an embodied human male. Jesus was male, but he had followers who were both men and women. He really physically lived in a body. He really physically died in a body. He was really physically buried, his body was. And he really physically rose from the dead with a new resurrection body. And right now today, he sits enthroned, embodied in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And he's the one who offers everyone who believes in him the future resurrection of our bodies, that we'll be with him in fullness and, and, and perfection, that, that this confusion that is going on will not be forever, but we'll be resurrected in new bodies to be with him forever, where there'll be no more marriage, no more sex and all those, because that's not needed. Why? Because we are in perfect union with Christ, still living as embodied human beings, but with him forever. That's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope we have to give. See, the same way that a man is saved is the same way that a woman is saved. It's not that being a man makes you more savable or being a woman makes you more savable. It's not that being straight makes you more savable. It's not that being gay makes you more savable. It's not that being comfortable in your own body makes you more savable. And it's not that being uncomfortable in your own body makes you more savable. There's only one way of salvation for men and women alike, for all of us who are broken, and it is this, Galatians says it, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That verse is not about the removal of gender, it is about the fact that gender cannot and will not save you. The only way to be saved is to place your faith in Jesus the Christ, the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, 
to die for us and who is resurrected and lives so that all who believe in him will live forever. I love the way that Jackie Hill Perry talks about this. It's a lengthier quote, but I think it's worth reading. She says this, I think it is imperative that the conversation does not center around sexuality, but it centers around God who created sex, God who created people. Growing up in church, being someone who is same-sex attracted, it seemed like the only reason that I was to turn from it would be because I should do right and I shouldn't go to hell and I shouldn't do wrong. But in coming to Christ, I wondered, if anyone would have just told me about the beauty of God, would I have repented quicker? They never cast a vision for this is your reason for turning. This is the person that you are turning to. And this is the person who will give you hope. The person who will give you the power to flee your temptation even when you walk with him. So I think that's really what our culture needs is to see and understand God. And I think in understanding God, then everything else makes sense. So if it's why should I not give in to my same-sex desires, why should I obey Jesus? It's because he's good. And he created your body for himself. And the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for somebody. And who was that somebody? It was for the Lord. So he's not telling you to turn from something that you suppose is good to turn to something that is bad. If God created sex, then surely he has to be better than it. I sound like John Piper here, but showing that God is so good and so big that even if it hurts, even if there is some grief from you detaching from the flesh and living the way that you used to live, even in all of that, God is being really good to you to tell you to stop. And so I think that's what we need, is sexuality underneath the goodness and the glory of God. You know, this past week, Ligonier Ministries released their latest State of Theology survey. Maybe some of you saw it. Every other year, they release a survey polling the religious temperature of Americans. They give a series of questions and rate people on how they respond to them. Some of the results are encouraging, some are discouraging, there's a lot to unpack. But here's what's interesting. Among so-called evangelicals, this survey found 99% of them believe that God created male and female. 94% believe that sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. 92% believe abortion is a sin, and only 28% believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not still apply today. It's things to be encouraged by amongst so-called evangelicals. But there are also alarming trends. For example, over half of this so-called evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions equally. Nearly three-fourths of them agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And slightly under half of these so-called evangelicals believe that Jesus is not God. In other words, slightly less than half of these so-called evangelicals are not Christians at all. Which suggests, of course, that evangelical has become more of a term associated with a moral, political movement than it has with actual Christian faith. But here's the reality, friends. If we have people who believe that premarital sex is bad, but that Jesus is not God, all you have are people having less sex on the road to hell. We need to give them Jesus, not just sexual ethics. And I'm not saying don't give them sexual ethics. We gotta be clear on what the Bible does teach, but it must never be divorced from the gospel of Christ. See, otherwise, you're going to someone and you're saying, you're in sin, and that's it. But what we have to offer is, you're in sin and there's a savior. Let me tell you about him. 
the hope of Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, and the one who will resurrect our bodies once more. Sexuality underneath the goodness of God for his glory. This is the God who wants you to find your fullest joy, your fullest satisfaction, your fullest delight in him, in him alone. This is the hope that Christ gave, who came for the sexually immoral, who came for the sexually broken, who came for the sexually confused and discouraged to offer life. It gives hope to those who dislike their own bodies and feel uncomfortable in their own skin because the redemption of the body is coming. Because our Savior died and was raised to life, we have the promise, the assurance that we too one day will rise to be with him in a body like his. And that day is coming. And we pray that that day comes soon when all the confusion, all the brokenness, all the, the sin will cease. But in the meantime, we live in the midst of it. We live with the pain, we live with the brokenness, we live with the knowledge that this is not the way it was supposed to be. But we cling to the truth of how God made us, how God made the world, and say there is gonna be more joy and fulfillment in following after him because I was made to know Christ and to enjoy Christ. And that, and only that, will truly satisfy my soul. Father, I, uh, we come to you and we know that uh, there are people in here this morning who when they hear these things, it doesn't register the same way it does for others. Some of them, some people in here are saying, yeah, you know, way to go, we need to hear this. And other people are saying, yeah, but these longings inside me are so strong. I don't know what to do with it. Lord, I, you know, I, I don't know where everybody's at. I don't know where each person in this room is at, but I ask, Lord, that you would meet them by your spirit to show them your good design for humanity, to show them how you made them, your purpose, your intention in that. But more so, Father, would you show them Christ? Would you open the eyes of their heart to see your son Jesus as he really is? as the Savior who came for the broken and the sinful, who came for the oppressed and the mistreated, who came for the confused and the helpless, Lord, I pray that you would show us him. Meet us in these things, Lord. I pray that we would see you as the one who gives the deepest joy for our souls. I pray we would see you as the one whom we can trust with our life, both body and soul. You are our hope in life and death. We thank you for that. And we thank you that our hope is that we belong both body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. May we enjoy him and delight in him in deeper ways this week. And may you use that to hold us fast against the, the, the lures of temptation, whatever they might be, and cling to your son, Jesus, for whom we were created, in whom we find the most joy, and in whose name we pray, amen.